Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. And we are back as is very quickly becoming a tradition that I and all of the fans and lovers of Hell and High Water are coming to adore the presence of the one and only Grace Weinstein. Grace, how are you? Here we are another week. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. When we booked Mallory McMorrow to come on this show, I thought, well, here's a guest that Grace is going to be into. A woman, a fierce woman, and a fierce woman who is, though, Grace, you're a little younger than 35, is kind of more age appropriate than some of the guests who come on this show. When you saw her give that speech that made her famous, what did you think? I was like icon in the making. Instant icon was ready to tear up the internet as we knew it. And honestly, like Drake said, nothing was the same. (laughs) Yeah. Every day, if you work at the recount, you know this. Politicians are giving speeches all day long. Yak, 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 yak. And none of them moves the needle. It's hard to break through with a speech in the way like Barack Obama did at the convention in 2004 that made him a star. This isn't quite that level. But the day before that speech went viral that she gave in the Michigan State Senate, fighting back against the Republican culture war broadly and accusations of being a groomer specifically. No one knew who this person was. And now that speech has 20 million views and she's being invited to comment on everything everywhere. She's the most maybe in demand Democrat in the country. It's incredible, right? I mean, that overnight sensation quality, you just don't see it that much in politics. No, absolutely not. And I think it speaks to the fact that it's so valuable to hear a politician, especially of a younger generation, speak like a normal person. It's not to say that she speaks like me. I have a certain unique way of speaking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, you do. Yeah, you do. You speak like, uh, yeah. She's not a California native like yours truly, but to speak in the same headspace and in the same vocabulary and with the same frustration and passion that people of my age do was so, so underratedly refreshing. Yeah. She doesn't speak in legislativees, legislatees, legislativees. I don't know, whatever. She doesn't sound like an inside the Bellway creature, or even an inside no. the East Lansing creature. She speaks like the way people talk, basically. And she is compelling on what happened in Buffalo on the questions related to the repeal of Roe v. Wade, what's happened to the Michigan Republican Party. When you heard that speech, part of it was fierce, but you could really hear the emotion in her voice, right? Her voice kind of quavers in a couple places where you can tell the righteous fury is taking her right to the brink of the edge of working. She could stay in control. I think that's part of why it's appealing, right? Because you can hear how raw it is. And it's not canned. I think there's such a restraint that I think Democrats on any level are so used to exercising because they don't want to be seen as overzealous and they don't want to be seen as the emotional left. And she just tosses that to the wayside despite any fear that I assume she must have been feeling and let that come through appropriately and in a way that just spoke to, you know, those 10 million people that have watched this clip. She was obviously nervous, but it wasn't just fear. It turns out it was also rage. And it wasn't just rage in general at this Republican state senator who'd accused her of being a groomer. It was what was actually going on in the chamber at that moment. I had not heard her talk about this before, but here's Mallory McMorrow just for a little taste of this. This is her describing what was actually going on at the end of the speech when her emotion was at its highest pitch. I wrote down what I wanted to say, and I was very intentional about what I wanted to say. But Lana Tice, who you know is the woman who attacked me, She couldn't even be bothered to look at me the entire time. She turned around. She turned her back to me. I was looking at the back of her head. So that's where that reaction came from is you can't even acknowledge that I'm in the room right now. I'd be infuriated too. I thought probably I would have thrown a stapler at the woman if if she did that to me under the circumstances. 
She did not obviously think that this would become a viral sensation, but she was not just defending herself. She was, in some sense, trying to say, here's a model for how Democrats should talk about these culture war issues. This is the way you have to fight back. I don't know if she thought what kind of reception she thought she'd get, but she definitely had it in mind that she was trying to lay down some markers here and say, guys, this is how you do it. Right. It's so interesting to me to see her traffic in the faith conversation because Republicans have just so co-opted anything related to religion for however many decades now. And she was like, hold on, let me explain what that faith means to me and how I practice it just like you do and maybe even better than you do because you are not even abiding by the words of the gospel that I live by. And I was just like, what a brilliant table flip. (laughs) Flip the table. Yeah, flip the table and use some jujitsu at the same time. But here's my pop quiz for you, okay? How old is Nancy Pelosi? 82. I was going to guess 81. <laughs> how, old, how old is Steny Hoyer, the number two House Democrat? 84. 82. How old is Jim Clyburn, the number three House Democrat? 84. <laughs> 81. Okay, so the three top House Democrats are all in their 80s. Elizabeth Warren seems like a spring chicken because she's in her mid seventies. It's like, this is the party of the young grace. This is the party that's supposed to represent the rising generation. And it's like octogenarian nation out there. It's crazy. But that is again, why Mallory McMorrow is so compelling. Cause it's like, Oh wait, there's someone in their thirties who could actually be a leader of this party. And that senior squad can't manufacture a media moment to save their damn lives. Yeah. It's absurd. I think people are going to like this podcast for a lot of reasons, but if you're a Democrat and you're frustrated by the fact that the gerontocracy runs your party uh, and you wonder where are the youngsters who are going to come up and save us before the entire party collapses into a tomb or a crypt, this is somebody who has a very bright future in the party. Mallory McMorrow, so does Grace Weinstein for that matter. Two young women with a bright future. The sky's the limit for Mallory McMorrow. All she got to do is keep doing what she's doing already, which is facing down the hell in hot water. What happened here is simple and straightforward. Terrorism. Terrorism. Domestic terrorism. Violence inflicted in the service of hate and the vicious thirst for power. Hate that through the media and politics, the internet, has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced by the other, by people who don't look like them. Jill and I bring you this message from deep in our nation's soul. In America, evil will not win, I promise you. Hate will not prevail. So that was Joe Biden last week up in Buffalo giving a typically a heartfelt speech on occasions like this. Joe Biden knows grief as well as any president in our history and, and went to Buffalo in the wake of the, the racist shooting up there. And we have Mallory McMorrow with us here. And I got to say, Mallory, I played that clip in a very purposeful way because I was like, hey, will not prevail. Where have I heard that before? That's, that's a familiar, that's a familiar thing. Everybody knows your viral speech at this point. When you heard him say that, did you think, I mean, we'll play that part of your speech in a little bit, but like, it must have rung your bell a little bit because it sounds awfully, not in a bad way, not like a, uh, like as if he's cribbing from you, but just this very resonant. No, I did. And it, it, it struck a chord with me in a way that felt 
really right because this is hate and it is terrorism and just calling it what it is. And I think to, to the earlier point, nobody knows grief and pain more than Joe Biden does. And and I think that he is at his best when he's expressing that and showing vulnerability as as a strength. So it, it rung very similar to what we saw here in Michigan and and for a horrific purpose, but it, it needed to be said and I'm glad he said it. For anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about right now, I'm going to play a lot throughout this show, this now super famous viral speech that Mallory gave now a little over a month ago on the floor of the Michigan State Senate. And it ends with an invocation that sounds very similar to what Biden said and a very important thing to assert and to believe that hate will not ultimately be triumphant. But it did make me think about you just in in this very particular way. Like I said, it's been a month you gave that speech and we'll talk more about it in detail. But you've been on a wild ride since then. I mean, a lot of speeches given every day in America. I mean, a lot of them, like at every level of government in, in lots of other forums, right? Very few speeches, certainly not by President Biden, not very, very many presidents I've covered in the 30 years I've done this. Somebody gives a speech and they and the speech resonates in a way where it genuinely transforms the life of the person who gave it. And I'm sure in some ways your life remains much the same with your husband and your child, et cetera. But in another way, I mean, just be candid, nobody knew who you were a month ago. And now a lot of people know who you are and have very strong feelings about you, many of them positive. So what's that been like to go through what's happened in the last month? Yeah, it's been it's been unreal. And one of the, the most jarring questions that I've gotten over the past month is, did you expect this speech to to get this kind of pickup? And my response is, no, I'm a state senator in Michigan. You know, when we do a speech on the Senate floor, we put it in my email newsletter. We put it on my Facebook page. It's really for my constituents. Sometimes it goes a little bit outside of that area, but now I think it's up to over 16 million views on Twitter alone and however many stories and shows it's it's been covered in, but the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Like I stop by our PO box almost every day and it's been stuffed with people just, just writing letters about their lives. Some people are handwriting cards about what this meant to them and and it has really reinvigorated me. It's definitely changed my life. I haven't slept very much in the past <laughs> month. Uh, but in a good way, you know, I yeah, have been yeah, so yeah, sure. burned out, like I think a lot of people are after the past few years with COVID and the 2020 election nonsense, especially focused on Michigan. And, and this has just reinvigorated me, reminded me why I got into this in the first place. And it feels like 2018 felt again, that we were right. responding to something really dark and, and we were capable of, of doing pretty incredible things. Right. We all know what it's like that there's different kinds of tiredness, right? And there's the tiredness where you're beaten down, just feels like everything's crushing you. And then there's the tiredness that comes from the exhaustion, but adrenaline fueled, you're awake with because the adrenaline is coursing through your veins and you feel as though you're fighting the good fight. And like, I think everybody's had that at one level or another, not maybe at the level of fame that you now have, but you, you, know, you know the difference. You can be just as tired, just as, but, but the difference, the, the, the quality is different because you feel like you're doing the right thing and you're getting traction. And I think the crazy question is, did you ever expect this to happen? Yes. I sat down to write this speech and I thought, I will give this <laughs> speech here in Lansing and 12 million people will watch it in the first day that I give it because that's what was a reasonable expectation for a state senator from Michigan. And in no, her yeah, I, I sort of joked with people outside of maybe five people who watch the Michigan Senate session. It's my grandmother in Long Island who tunes into every single one. So yeah. there's like seven total people who watch what happens on the Senate floor. Of the things that have happened in the month since, 
I know you've said before, I mean, you've gotten, obviously, you get tons of incoming and electronic and probably physical mail. You've done a lot of interviews, been on a lot of things like this, been on some things that are even more powerful than the Hell and Hot Water podcast. I mean, but on Morning Joe, I think twice, which is really everyone's, when you think about what you want to be when you grow up, it's like, I want to get on Morning Joe. Um, uh, I say to my lovely friends there, um, are there any particular things that stand out where you think the reaction, either someone you've met, where the, there's been a, things, things you think you'll remember your whole life about the reaction that have really stuck with you on some emotional, visceral level? Yeah, it's a lot of the the personal stories. You know, it's not the phone calls I'm getting from very well-known people. We got a, a three-page letter that I read, and it was from a man who said that he has been caring for his elderly mother and, and has been a caretaker his entire life, but is a gay man. And that he grew up in the 70s and 80s and remembers all of the, the kind of last round of visceral attacks on the gay community. And that he couldn't imagine that we would get back to this place in 2022 where the same accusations of pedophilia and grooming you know, are thrown back at this community. And just he said that he's near the end of his life, but he's glad that he lived long enough to hear what I said. And it's just yeah. tearing up now thinking about it. You know, it, it, it's yeah. those types of things that are really heartwarming and, and hard to read. You know, I can't imagine what that feels like. But if, if I did anything that resonated with somebody like that, that means a lot. When you see the editor of the New Yorker magazine, Mr. David Remnick, another friend of this podcast and a friend of mine, you get a story in the New Yorker, a role model for the midterms. You see a story in New York magazine that says that you become a, a beacon for beleaguered liberals struggling with the right's latest moral panic over equality for LGBTQ plus people, especially trans children. Your speech is remarkable because it cuts through the atmosphere of fear. Do you see yourself in that? Or does that seem like it is like an out-of-body out experience to be held up in that way in those kinds of places? Again, for a 35-year-old who's a state senator in her second term, you know, no disrespect. I mean, it's just, it's a very, it's a lot. It's oh, a lot. It's a lot for taken. someone. Yeah, yeah and it's, it, a, it's it is, a lot. Yeah, know? it is a, an out-of-body experience. You know, I, a lot of people have been asking about my broader strategy and what went into this speech. <laughs> and, and part of me... I respond really honestly. It's like, look, I flipped a district when I ran for the first time in 2018. I've been in this job for three and a half years. I've introduced 40 bills. I haven't gotten a hearing on a single one of them. Yeah. So genuinely, when I wrote this down, I was like, well, if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. And right. it was, you know, a colleague came after me with a really personal, horrific attack. And I wanted to stand up for myself and in a really strong way that that was thinking about However bad I felt for one day, it feels significantly worse if you are the parent of a trans child, if you are in the black community and you've seen the CRT nonsense being thrown around. And, and that was really my only response. So, yeah, it is definitely an out-of-body experience. But I think as taking a step back from being a Democratic elected official, I'm also a person. Yeah. And I watch what's happening in our country. And part of me just wants to scream into the abyss. You know, why isn't there the sense of urgency or panic that I feel, especially in Michigan, as we're, we're kind of slow walking into the next cycle? And the very real reality in Michigan, there may never be free and fair elections again if the Republican Party gets away with what they're doing. So that was a lot of what I carried into it is just we need to be angry about this. I'm going to come back because I want to take apart the speech a little bit later and talk about your colleague who launched the attack because it opens the door into a discussion of the whole 
pedophilia and grooming discussion, yeah. which is one very important aspect. And it genuinely new. It's not new ever in the history of America, but it's new in my lifetime as, as part of that that's become normalized in the political discourse. There, there's obviously other pieces of that culture war. First, I want to talk about the one that goes back to Joe Biden, talk a little bit about race in a second here. But I, I will now play the part that the end of your speech, just to kind of tie that in a bow, your hate won't win conclusion. But I'll say this. I think there are remarkable things about the speech. It is, I think, important. The way people are, are dissecting it, and Democrats may at least be aspiring to take some lessons from it, I think is important. I also think it's funny that people think it's so remarkable in the sense that there's a little bit of a Howard Beale quality to it. It's like, we, we know when people get mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore and stand up and express authentic anger in a righteous cause. That often resonates with people. Usually those things just don't find an audience, but when they do, of course- the honest, passionate, raw, personal expression of anger, righteous anger in an honest, authentic way. That is really almost the only thing that ever resonates with people anymore in this world. So let's listen to the very end of that speech and we'll hear what I'm talking about. This is Nia McMorrow at the end of her speech on April 19th, the thing that Joe Biden echoed very loudly in Buffalo last week. I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. I'm right. Your voice is quavering a little bit there. You're very fierce in the speech, but at the end there, it sounded like you were also fierce, but also like really teetering the edge of, of a very intense emotion. Yeah. And uh, that that wasn't planned. You know, I, I wrote down what I wanted to say and I was very intentional about what I wanted to say. But yep. Lana Tice, who, you know, is the woman who attacked me, she couldn't even be bothered to look at me the entire time. She turned mm. around. She turned her back to me. I was looking at the back of her head. So Ugh. that's where that reaction came from is you can't even acknowledge that I'm in the room right now. Yeah, that would piss me off. Yeah. I mean, But I think, again, the intensity is part of why it works. And I want to talk about the Biden thing because these two elements here, right? This thing explodes. You become famous overnight in American political culture and held up as kind of exemplar of what Democrats should now do in the face of this cultural onslaught. And then, of course, as as often happens in America, some really fucking horrible thing happens. And I'm thinking of the Buffalo shooting here. And because you're famous and because people think you have a strategy to save the Democratic Party, even though you were like, I just wanted to say what was on my mind, people now are like, get you on television and say, well, Senator McMorrow, what say you about what happened in Buffalo? And is this part of the same problem? And you're, I mean, first of all, another out-of-body experience because no one on national television has ever asked you that before. But did you immediately, when the Buffalo shooting happened, did you sort of immediately say, I wasn't talking about gun violence in this speech. I was talking about other things, but these are intimately connected. It's part of the same problem. I have something to say about this. Somebody please just give me a microphone. This is connected. This is not a distinct, different issue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And my speech didn't happen in a vacuum or in a moment, especially in Michigan. We've seen this rising trend of hate and hate speech. We had a protest on April 30th of 2020 at our Capitol with heavily armed gunmen who came into our Senate chambers. And I want to differentiate. They did not break in like January 6th. They were invited in by the Republican Senate Majority Leader to come up with AR-15s and hold guns over our heads while we were on the floor. And we have seen nooses, swastikas, and this winking and nodding to ideas like replacement theory. We have a colleague who gets up every day and just gives a statement on whatever it is that was on Tucker Carlson last night. 
We had protests all throughout my district, which is an 80 percent white district just north of Detroit, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd with people demanding change. And we haven't seen it. And as soon as I saw what happened in Buffalo, your heart sinks because you're like, yeah, of course this happened. You know, this is the logical end when you hear repeated over and over and over again, not just fringe conspiracy theories from QAnon or in the back corners of the Internet, but when it's echoed by people like Elise Stefanik, by Republican leaders in my Senate chambers who have said of militia groups, they have really good ideas. They just need to work on their branding, which is horrifying. So it, it's, it wasn't surprising, which is the most devastating thing about it. Michigan is a, such a, I've heard you talk about this a little bit before. My, my mother was from, from Michigan and she grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I spent a lot of time in Michigan as a kid. I grew up in California, but and I've covered it off and on because I covered Timothy McVeigh in 1995. And so the, the Michigan militia thing is something I have known about for a long time before I knew about militia stuff before it was fashionable. Um, huh. But Michigan's a funny state. Again, I've heard you make this point. You got three female elected officials, Democrats in the top three statewide offices. In Gretchen Whitmer, the, the the governor, and and Jocelyn Benson, the secretary of state, Dan Nessel, the attorney general, that looks a pretty like a pretty blue state. Not just all three Democrats, but three Democratic women, strong progressive Democratic women, and then you've got this crazy other culture that is the the clenched fist and camouflage crowd, and also, you know, the white robes and hoods and and the equivalent yeah. of that and the swastikas and all that kind of stuff. Do you hear that replacement theory stuff echoed in Michigan? I mean, we hear Tucker Carlson talk about it on TV, but do you hear that? in Bloomfield Hills? Is that a thing that's rattling around in your district where it's something that comes up in town halls or, or in diners? I know the diners in your district, some of them are pretty fancy, but They're, you know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I mean, you live in that side. I, I know that part of Michigan. It's the nice, nice yeah. part of town. It's, it's, we hear it in, in small conversations, not out loud in public. Right. When I campaigned for the first time back in 2018, I remember going door to door and, you know, you ask, what's your most important issue? What are you concerned about? And the number of people then who said the caravan at the border. And in my head, I'm thinking, we border Canada. Are you concerned about Canadians <laughs> coming over the Detroit River? Like, we're nowhere near the southern border. But it, it is, you would start to hear it's, you know, those people are coming for our jobs when that's fundamentally not true. And you cut to four years later and we've got a constituent who calls fairly regularly, she's a, a frequent caller into our office, lives alone. She's older. She was a Republican precinct delegate years ago. So if she's on the receiving end of the Michigan GOP mailing list and, and whatever kind of media she watches, she is concerned about whatever the talking point is of the moment. So she still thinks the 2020 election was stolen. She still believes my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, <laughs> as an election security expert that somehow computers in China changed votes in Oakland County. And she is concerned that there are too many of those people being invited in and pointing out, you know, it's, it's again, it's like the winking and nodding of it. Michigan has the second steepest drop in birth rate behind only Illinois. Our population has pretty much flatlined. We lost a congressional district. And she hears it as those people are coming in. I had a woman really bluntly ask me during COVID why I, as a white woman, was not standing up for her against those people in Detroit. And it, I was so appalled, but it's there, you know, it's, it's there and it's under the surface. And depending on kind of what your daily digest of information is, it is a very real issue for you, but you're right. In Bloomfield Hills, it's not as out in the open as it may be elsewhere. 
Yeah, I just assume that there must be a giant problem with the Quebecois, you know, who are like, oh, they oh, make yeah. their way down through, to, through, through Toronto, Montreal, and then they come across into Michigan and they mess up your labor market. Um, <laughs> you know, I, they I mean, did block the bridge, though. That was a real problem. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so this element, and it goes to, I mean, the reason, part of the reason I want to talk to you about it is because your speech, because of the accusations of being a groomer and basically being a, a pedophile enabler, at the center of the speech, it, it's the thing that gets all the attention. And again, I want to talk about it in a little bit in some detail, but there is this other element in the speech that you gave, which spoke to the notion that you are, what's the quote, that the, the way that you characterized it was that what your Republican colleague was suggesting was that you were someone who wanted children to believe they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. That's one element of the way this race thing works, right? Which is that liberals are trying to shame white kids that's the one woke critique. And then there's this other demographic thing, which is the the great replacement theory, which is they're trying to shame us, those of us that are here, but they're also trying to replace us because we are the most persecuted group. The, the white hetero conservative is the ultimate repressed minority now. That's kind of at the, the hinge of the rhetoric, right? I'm joking about Bloomfield Hills, but there is, I think, everywhere that sense of white grievance it's obviously more in struggling economic classes, people who are seeing who fear demographic change because they're economically marginal or vulnerable. And you see it more in the working class than you do amongst other people who live in Bloomfield Hills. But you do hear it from people who live in Bloomfield Hills in, in a much yeah. more polite way. Just talk about in Michigan, a state that is, you know, kind of average in terms of its demographic breakdown. It's got a, a big black population in Detroit. But, you know, if you looked at the overall state, it's not wildly more white or less white than a lot of states that have a big industrial core or ex-industrial core like like Michigan does. How much do you think white grievance kind of courses through the the body politic in Michigan? And how much of that do you think is at the core of what's creating the opening for this culture war, the broader culture war Republicans are waging, and why Democrats are so well the essential challenge Democrats have to deal with and haven't been dealing with all that well? I mean, it's really fascinating because there's a reason why Oakland County, where I serve, has gone Democratic, because I think this current iteration of the Republican Party is leaning in hard on racism, white nationalism, anti-LGBTQ. And you've got a lot of people where I serve who think, you know what, I'm not that person. I'm not this version of the Republican Party. I'm a moderate Republican. I want lower taxes. It's Mitt Romney's hometown right. and have been voting for Democrats. And, and part of my pitch is like, you don't have to be a Democrat to vote for me. We're not that bad. I promise you. And and I think that trend has happened. I don't hear it as much among, you know, my constituents, among the population, but it is a loud and clear message coming out of the Michigan GOP. We had a, a colleague, a Republican state senator, wear a Confederate flag mask on the floor during session. Michigan is the northest state of the north. We sent yeah. more troops in the Civil War to fight the Confederacy than any other state in the Union. That is something that we're very proud of in Michigan. Right. So the fact that that is a message, and he said at the time, he's like, oh, I knew this would be controversial, but I didn't think it was a Confederate flag. My wife said this, right? And it's like, you get to take credit for <laughs> aligning with racists without the responsibility. So that's really a concern to me. And we had Christopher Rufo, who has admitted openly to really creating the fear around critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion, really anything related to history, education about race or racism being a big, scary thing. He testified in the Michigan Senate Education Committee six months ago, admitting that he made it up. 
But now he's on record and, and, you know, the New York Times recently of saying attacks on the LGBTQ community are significantly more powerful. You see the trend of this is the new scary thing, fill in the blank, that we can terrorize even our own supporters to think that everybody and everything is out to get you when you leave your door. So I want to play a little Tucker Carlson just now, just because I, this gets at a broader thing. First of all, I just want to call out Tucker because I think it's always important to do, but then I want to get a little bit underneath it. First, I want to play the, what Tucker said last week in the wake of the shooting in, in Buffalo and Tucker kind of basically trying to say, hey, don't look over here. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Fox News is not responsible. I'm not responsible. This guy was just out of his mind. It had nothing to do with politics. Let's play that, what Tucker said at the beginning of last week. Gendron left in a 180 page letter that he said would explain his motives. You've probably heard this document described as a racist manifesto. But what he wrote does not add up to a manifesto. It is not a blueprint for a new extremist political movement, much less the potential inspiration for a racist revolution. The document is not recognizably left-wing or right-wing. It's not really political at all. The document is crazy. It's the product of a diseased and organized mind. So that's what Tucker uh, said last week. Now, it's slightly different from what Tucker has been saying for the last couple of years. We'll hear that right now with a supercut that uh, some smart people put together of a bunch of different invocations of Tucker Carlson over the course of 2021, talking about what's known among right-wing racist lunatics as the great replacement theory, which as we all know now, was what inspired the shooter in Buffalo to kill a bunch of black people. So let's take a listen to that sound, Tucker Carlson. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. In other words, you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. So shut up. <laughs> Our country's being invaded by the rest of the world. Let me just state unequivocally, the country's being stolen from American citizens as we watch. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. Wow. Legacy Americans. Uh, I just, I just, that, that phrase just, I mean, legacy Americans and also the more obedient, new, more obedient voters from the third world, which is a very, very kind way of saying people who have different pigmentation than me. I, I just want you to talk about it, Tucker Carlson. And I, I want you to talk about it because of this. Y- you are now speaking out forcefully about a lot of things. And a lot of people are cheering you on because it's like, thank God someone's finally standing up and fighting back. Joe Biden gave a good speech in Buffalo. People say, God, you know, Joe Biden should convene a a meeting at the White House on white supremacy and try to stamp it out. I mean, White House meetings that elevate the questions of of racism and white supremacy. I'm for that. I saw Chuck Schumer last week getting up on the, the floor of the Senate and calling out Tucker Carlson. And I watched that and I think good for him. It's great that Chuck Schumer's calling a spade a spade on Tucker Carlson and laying that on the line. You know, he's right. Tucker Carlson deserves opprobrium. I would love to see Tucker Carlson not on the air. And yet, you know, I know that that's not really going to happen. And more importantly, putting aside the efficacy of these things, White House convocations and speeches from the Senate floor, I think that most people in America, it's just like white noise to them. And and certainly it's white noise. And I'm using that term advisedly to the white audiences who need to hear it most. 
I don't think it's going to change anything. Certainly, there's not a single potential mass shooter in America who's going to hear Joe Biden or see Joe Biden convene a meeting at the White House or listen to Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor and be like, you know what? I think those guys are right. That's really changed my mind about this great replacement theory. And this kind of points to a larger thing, which is that there are moments in our society where what happens in Washington matters more or less. And right now, at this moment in American society, I just think that culture has primacy over politics in America right now. The stuff that happens in Washington, D.C., the beltway, blah, 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 is just not sinking in and people don't really give a shit. And what's driving the society and what's dividing the society are these cultural factors, these cultural forces. And Tucker Carlson is no longer a beltway creature. Tucker Carlson's up in Maine and broadcasting from a house up in Maine. He's gone off the grid in some ways. He's no longer like a Beltway figure. And that's, I think, has coincided with the rise in his power. He's up there. He's tapped in to a bunch of really deep and really dangerous strains in American society, American culture. He's exacerbating those things. And, and that cultural power is what makes him so dangerous. So I guess, Mallory, my question for you is, what do you think of Tucker Carlson and what we all should make of him and what we should do about him? Well, that's, I have been screwing into the abyss since taking office, that 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 is what Trump did really well. He understood that whoever controls the news cycle, the media narrative wins. I grew up in New Jersey. I, I, I grew up knowing the Donald Trump that bankrupted Atlantic City and wasn't a particularly good businessman who descended on an escalator to announce his candidacy for presidency and immediately launched into attacking immigrants at the southern border. And what is horrifying about this supposed manifesto and all of these things is it's all intricately connected. He also said that he wasn't going to target Jews right away because there were less of them, but they were orchestrating this whole thing and he was going to go after them later. And this idea that all of these people are connected, the only way we beat that is not by policy, is not by convening tax forces. It's fighting back culturally. And what I really tried to do in my speech and was talk to people who look like me, suburban, white, straight moms who, by and large, are not marginalized, are not under attack. You're doing fine. But just because you're fine doesn't mean that this is fine. And the more that people like me take a back seat and just kind of say, well, I'm really tired after the past few years, this is going to sort itself out. It's not going to sort itself out. It's going to get a lot worse because if we're not in there controlling the narrative and giving other white people space to join us and say, this is the country that we want, not the one that Tucker Carlson is spouting, then Tucker and the current GOP fill that void and they tap into people. You know, we're never going to reach any everybody. We're never going to re- reach white nationalist extremists, but we've got to drive them back into the minority because right now it is a loud vocal minority that is controlling policy, that is controlling the Michigan GOP. And it's terrifying. And it's going to take the rest of us who are not marginalized or under attack to put an end to it. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of Mallory McMorrow on Hell and High Water after these messages. Welcome 
Welcome back to Hell and High Water. We're here with Mallory McMorrow, Michigan State Senator, rising star of the Democratic Party. And Mallory, I, I want to get back into your speech a little bit more. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about some of the things related to grooming and pedophilia and those charges. But I want to stay for the moment with these questions related to race. And there is a portion of the speech that you gave, the viral speech that you gave, that was directly on this question. You were responding to this critic of yours in the other party who had suggested that you were the kind of person who wanted to make white kids feel bad about the history of slavery. And you responded to that in a very direct way. And I'm going to play the sound right now, but I, I want to just note in advance, you know, you start by describing yourself in a particular way. And the way that you describe yourself is something you do over and over again now. It's become part of your identity. I mean, it's obviously is your identity, but as a rhetorical maneuver, a rhetorical flourish, a rhetorical tick or whatever you want to call it, you go back to this invocation of the various constituent parts of your identity again and again and again. That's something you did in the speech on several occasions. You've done it a lot since, but this is a particularly important invocation of it that starts off the sound we're about to listen to because it leads into the discussion that follows, which is all about race and the politics of race in America right now and that charge that was leveled against you, which is that you're some kind of woke crazy who wants every child in America to walk around with a cloud of guilt over their head over what uh, America did to African-Americans for a long chunk of its history. So let's listen to that right now. Mylon McMorrow from her viral speech on the floor of the Michigan State Senate. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. You said more about it, obviously, than that. I think it's really important that, and you do this over and over again, now it's like a thing in your Twitter feed. I'm a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. Just explain that, why that's important. In some sense, it's non sequitur relative to the other things you were saying in there, but you assert that repeatedly all the time, loudly. Talk about the strategy involved in that and the rhetorical move and why it's important. It was important because we are the group that is being leveraged and weaponized to do damaging things. Christianity is the faith that is used to justify, you know, what we see happening with Roe right now, denying women bodily autonomy, denying gay parents the right to just walk around with their kids right now. I mean, that's what's happening. And what we saw in Virginia, how Glenn Youngkin got elected, was tapping into the very real frustrations of white suburban moms, who, again, are tired after the past few years. And I had a long conversation with a constituent who is one of these moms. She's tired. She's burned out. She joined a parents group initially to express frustration with the school board and lack of communication. And she called because she noticed that this group was starting to take on CRT issues, that this group was starting to take on attacking the LGBTQ community. And she called me to say, I'm not one of these people, but I also don't have anywhere to go. How do we express that I'm tired after the past few years and that we can't have school closures anymore? And how do we get to a place where it's normal? That really stuck with me because that is the group that needs to mobilize to put an end to to these attacks on marginal people. And I am one of those people. Right. So to be able to say, you do not speak for me, 
Lana Tice, when you are out here introducing bills to ban the 1619 Project and ban trans kids from playing sports, which, by the way, there are two kids in Michigan per year who play on a sports team that matches their gender identity. The idea that somehow they are the cause of other people's problems is hateful garbage. And it was taking my own identity back, but to talk to people like this constituent and say, I am like you. This is where we have to go. You're frustrated. I'm frustrated. I get it. I had a baby during COVID. Like It is frustrating and tiring, but we have to put our energy somewhere else. So one of the people who is a big fan of this speech of yours, who praised it uh, lavishly and extravagantly after you gave it, was the fabled Democratic political consultant, James Carville, the raging Cajun, steered Bill Clinton to victory in 1992 and, and then helped out again in 1996. James is kind of a living legend and a friend of mine. I just literally saw him a couple of days ago in Los Angeles. And we talked about your speech a little bit uh, in that moment. And he, he continues to say really nice things about it and sort of says this could be an, an instruction manual for Democrats in terms of how to talk about the culture wars. And lately, he's got a lot of notoriety from going on cable TV, whether it used to be with Brian Williams or on CNN, and saying that wokeness is a huge problem for Democrats. He gets critiqued for it in a lot of cases. I'll talk about that a little bit more on the other side of the sound, but let's play this sound first. This is from back right after the off-year elections back last November. He went on the news hour with Judy Woodruff and uncorked one of his trademark kind of denunciation slash diagnoses of one big part of the political problems that Democrats have, which is wokeness. Judy Woodruff asks him to explain why Democrats did so badly in the off-year elections last November. And this is James's explanation. What was wrong was just stupid wokeness. All right, you don't just look at Virginia and New Jersey. Look at Long Island. Look at Buffalo. Look at Minneapolis. Even look at Seattle, Washington. I mean, this defund the police lunacy to take Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools. I mean, that people see that. And it, 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 it's, it's just really a, have a suppressive effect all across the country. The Democrats, some of these people need to go to a woke detox center or something. I mean, they're, they're expressing a language that people just don't use. And there's a backlash and a frustration at that. So that's James Carville offering his explanation. And, you know, look, people on the progressive left get mad at James when he says this thing about wokeness all the time. And they're like, yo, he's a triangulating Bill Clinton guy and he's a redneck and he doesn't understand. He's too centrist. He's not with us on these issues. And I got to say, every time I hear it, I think, man, they're just out to lunch. James basically agrees with everything. Most 90 percent of what the progressive left wants. His thing is a purely political analysis. He says, you know, the way that Democrats are going about pursuing those things is off putting to a hugely important part of the electorate. And they need to figure out how to talk about these things in a different way. That's why he likes what you said, your speech on the floor of the state Senate, because he's like that woman has figured it out. She's totally down with progressive goals, but she talks about this not like some college professor, not someone in the Harvard faculty lounge, not someone who's you know a social justice warrior in a progressive activist group. She talks like a normal person about this, but with ferocity and intensity and based on principle. Because of that analysis, and this is an analysis that you know, Barack Obama privately feels about the Democratic Party. Barack Obama's as progressive as they come, but there's part of him that worries about the fact that Democrats alienate key voting blocks by not understanding how to speak like normal people and by speaking in a kind of an accusatory way, you know, the formulation, which is talking to working class and middle class whites and saying, you know, America would be OK if you were just a little less racist isn't a way to win elections. That's an Obama kind of analysis. So I guess I want to ask you, we've got the Carville analysis. We've got the Obama analysis. They both on some level think that wokeness is a problem. Do you agree? I do agree with that because it doesn't give space 
for people to join you if they are tired and they feel like they're losing opportunities and they're not in an economic place that they wish they could be you're not giving them an opening to join you if you're just lecturing them on the very real issues of race and redlining and all these other things but if you can say to them i know you're frustrated but they're lying to you too like that's the point that whether or not you're the parent of a trans child they are lying and manipulating you and also not offering up any solutions to your problems either. They're taking advantage of you too. Then it's a connection point where we can say it's an attack on all of us and we have to move forward together so that you do have the opportunities that you want to have that, that you feel rightly frustrated about. So we come now to, to the speech in, in, in full, right? What happens here is we've mentioned her name now a few times, State Senator Lana Tice. And in the State Senate, she does an invocation where she says, we're seeing the news that our children are under attack, that there are these forces that desire things for them other than what their parents would have had them see and hear and know. Dear Lord, I pray for your guidance in this chamber to protect the most vulnerable among us. You and a couple other Democrats walk out because you see what's going on here. These code words are clear. And then she attacks you, Tice attacks you in a fundraising email. And this is what she says. She says, these are the people we are up against progressive social media trolls like Senator Mallory McMorrow, D. Snowflake, who are outraged they can't teach, can't groom and sexualize kindergartners or that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. Okay. She's calling, she's calling you a groomer, right? And you've told this story at least once that I've seen in some magazine story where you're kind of thinking about how to react to this and you're giving a bath to your child. So what's going through your mind and like, what's the plan for you in terms of doing this speech? I mean, obviously you didn't expect to get 12 million views of it almost instantly on the first day, but what was the short term and then the longer term strategy that you were pursuing here? If there was one at all, other than just defending yourself. So I learned about the fundraising email in the morning on a Monday, and then I had a lot of meetings and I, I didn't want this to distract from my job, but also I went an entire day and not one of my other Republican colleagues even texted or called anything to say, hey, this was horrible. I, I hope you're okay. Not one. And my husband was out of town. So I was at home at night giving my daughter a bath. She's one. No idea what's going on. And she was just laughing at me hysterically for no reason. <laughs> and I just started crying because this was a mom attacking another mom and accusing me basically of molesting children which is horrific, with no thought to what the consequences might be. I have friends who moved to Michigan from D.C. who were regulars at Comet Ping Pong. So, you know, their immediate reaction was, are you okay? Because this is the kind of language that encourages somebody to start shooting you. So it just, I dealt with a lot of emotion throughout the day, and I started yeah. writing a lot of things down. And a lot of it was originally pointing out the hypocrisy of the Republican Party. In Michigan, we are going through Lee Chatfield, who was previously the Republican Speaker of the House, who has been accused by his sister-in-law of grooming and raping her starting when she was 15. So I started writing a lot of that down. I erased a lot of it because I realized that that would just be the normal Democrats and Republicans are firing back at each other and accusing each other of hypocrisy. And I wanted to get to a point where I was reclaiming my own identity because, you know, I'm not a member of the LGBTQ community, which is what's under attack right now. But it felt like I was the the warning shot that if you dare to stand with them instead of with us, you're one of them. And I really wanted to reclaim my own background. I've been 
a little remiss to talk about my own upbringing in the church and with a mom who taught the equivalent of Sunday school. I just haven't done that. And I felt like it was important to really reclaim that, that I was somebody who grew up in the faith community. I went to Notre Dame. So how dare you use Christianity to hurt other people? And that's how we got to the speech we got the next day. I have a 90-minute commute, so I just repeated words over and over and over to myself for the, the car ride there until I got to something that I felt good about. But I, as, as we pointed out earlier, the delivery yeah. was not planned. That was really just a reaction to her not even acknowledging my existence. Right. And just to say something explicit here, which is I thought what you would say, right, that there's obviously a lot of personal emotion and fury that's been rattling around, obviously, in your head for a period of time, because that kind of thing isn't the thing that just one incident triggers. It's something that's kind of builds up. And then you then you suddenly decide this is the moment somehow the Rubicon gets crossed. Right. But to, to ask the obvious question, there's a middle ground between I expected this thing to go viral and make me famous, which is ridiculous. And the I just have to give this speech because I have to speak out for myself and reclaim my identity in the middle there. There's a space that could exist. And I'm not saying it does, but it's like, I think I know uh, Democrats are facing a problem. They're not good at this. They're not good at talking about this. They tend to let these charges go to, to not want to engage on it, to not want to give it oxygen. They have a theory in their head about how this works. But I want to show people that there's a different way to do this. And maybe I won't be the ultimate exemplar. I'm not that arrogant to think I could be the, an exemplar for anybody. But I do think I want to try to illustrate that there's a different tactical path that could be more effective. Was that at all in your head or was it purely, oh, yeah. I want to no, reclaim yeah. my personal identity? It, it, it was absolutely that because, and I've been this person, right? Like after we all worked so hard in Michigan in 2020 to help get Joe Biden elected president, right. we all wanted it to go back to normal after the inauguration, like breathe a sigh of relief and it yeah. was going to get back to kind of boring, normal politics. It didn't. And I think we have to wrap our heads around the fact that this is not normal. There's a sense of if we start talking about QAnon conspiracy theories, which is what a lot of this has come from, does it give it air? Does it give it life that it wouldn't have otherwise? We can't think that anymore because this has been pulled out into the open by one of our two major political parties and is causing real damage to real people right now. We saw this in Buffalo, right? Like it is out in the open. And if we don't address it and blunt it and show that it's not a winning strategy, it's going to keep going and it's going to keep growing. So I, the night before, called one of my colleagues who is the only openly gay senator that we have to just talk about how do I step into this space in a way that is respectful, that understands that I'm not the one under attack, really, that it's other people, but does so in a way that hopefully hits back so that you stop getting attacked, right? right. Because if he stood up and said, I'm not a groomer, the response would be, okay, groomer, and it would keep going. Right. Yeah. That degree of forethought, well, it obviously shaped the way you did it. If you're going to give a speech, I guess, the, do you have time limits there? Five minutes. Five minutes. So you have a five-minute time limit to try to pack. I mean, there's an economy to this speech that I think actually helps probably. Trying to get all that in in five minutes, it helps you be very rigorous the way you think it through. Like you landed at exactly five minutes. You mentioned your personal identity in the speech. You basically were saying, hey, you're calling me a, a groomer and <laughs> this is what's infuriating. Let me tell you a little bit about my background. I want to play that part because it'll open up a little discussion about you know where you came from and how you got to where you are now, by which I mean how you got to Michigan. So let's play that sound of Mallory McMorrow talking about her biography. Here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. 
My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. So you grew up in Jersey and there's more to that story there about your mom and the way she was treated in your diocese and stuff. I'm a Catholic school kid. And so CCD, Jesus, man, I, somebody was trying to, try to explain to somebody what CCD was the other day. And I was like, you haven't lived it. You don't really know, but it's, but, but Sunday school is a fine way of thinking about it. Yeah. But that culture, you went to Notre Dame, mm-hmm. like on paper, you're like a religious person. And I know you are in some ways a religious person, but you're also not, you're like a religious person the way a lot of people are, which is, you know, you're not a slave to the church and you've had complicated relationships with it. And and the church obviously has very complicated relationships when it comes to issues of pedophilia mm-hmm. and, and grooming and other things like that. I say that with a laugh, but a dark laugh, you know, just talk that through because the Notre Dame of it all, the complicated way in which faith is really important to you, but doesn't fit into the neat little box that certainly people who publicize their faith and whose faith is front and center on their Twitter bio, they want faith to be a certain kind of thing and look a certain kind of way. Yours is very deep and deeply rooted and motivates you a lot, but it's, it's actually the way a lot of more Americans have a relationship with faith. So I just want you to talk that through and how that fueled a lot of what you did that day and what you've been doing since. So it's a very weird experience running for office because, you know, you fill out all of these endorsement questionnaires and often it's it asks your name and where you live and do you have a spouse and religion and religion is a one word answer. So I have more often than not just not filled it out. Because it's a much longer answer. We used right. to attend church. Now we don't. My mom's a divorce. You know, all of these sorts of things. But that the the service and works aspect has really driven a lot of my life. And it's probably a huge part of the reason why I ran for office in the first place, which is how do we we give back and, and we show through through acts and through works. And in not talking about it, and my husband is Jewish in the same way, you know, Jewish kind of culturally, and, and we celebrate both holidays, but not as active in going to synagogue every day in the same way that I don't go to church every Sunday. When we don't talk about it, it it seeds that space for the specific neat box version of faith to take over. You know, Lana, and I said it very intentionally, she has since deleted her personal Twitter account, but her Twitter account said Christian wife and legislator, and as somehow that gives her permission yeah. to be the moral authority to tell anybody who is not her that they're wrong, broken, and don't belong. And it's disgusting. It's disgusting watching it happen and watching kind of this far-right evangelical Christianity take over. The fact that we have candidates running for office right now just bluntly saying that this should be an evangelical Christian country is horrifying to me. So I think more of us who this is a more common experience is people who maybe grew up in the church and it does drive you, but you're not the I check all the boxes type person to talk about that and to own that and to share that that is a much more common experience in a country where religious freedom means the freedom to practice your religion, not the freedom to inflict it on everybody else. And that's really what what I wanted to do is it's disgusting. Faith can be really powerful. And the example of the Catholic Church is a perfect example. It can be a source of hope and good, and it can be used to do really disgusting, terrible things. And I think we are at this moment right now in the country where 
you know, faith and, and, and is a really important part of our country, but what does it mean moving forward? Is it something that is used to hurt people or is it something that's used to help people? You know, the pedophile and, and grooming charges, as I said, I think early in the podcast, it's a genuinely new thing. And when I saw Marjorie Taylor Greene attack, soon to be Justice uh, Brown Jackson, attack Republicans who voted for her as, as pro-pedophile, Mitt Romney. Susan Collins. This is a Republican member of Congress attacking those people. I saw that in Twitter. I went, okay, this is this is really someplace we've not been before. At that level, if you're called Mitt Romney, <laughs> pro-pedophile, something's gone a little bonkers here. You know, you mentioned Stefanik this week. She got in trouble correctly, called out, pummeled for having this tweet that said the White House House Democrats and the usual pedo grifters, depending on if you're British or American, are so out of touch with the American people that rather than present any plan, blah, blah, blah. So pedo grifters. There was a phone call with somebody calling her office that got leaked, or someone who recorded it, where they challenged a staffer. And the staffer is so defensive about it. Stefanik staffer, who's kind of saying, you know, when, when no, pedo is not short for pedophile. Pedo just means children. It's like, what, okay, what the, <laughs> like in uh, what world? The, what the fuck are you talking about? OAN, they call uh, Joe Biden the groomer in chief. Marjorie Taylor Greene out in public, you know, saying Democrats are the party of pedophiles, the party of princess predators from Disney. Elementary teachers trying to transition the elementary school age children and convince them they're a different gender. You have, I was in Florida when Ron DeSantis was railing against Disney for promoting pansexualism. I, we're going to take away your tax breaks because there's some people at Burbank who say stuff on a Zoom I don't like about their sexual orientation. It's everywhere. And as I say, it's new. Do you understand why? Is it just that the trans phenomenon is new and disturbing to a lot of people? And so that's why some of these old tropes have, have suddenly risen to prominence. But it's happened very rapidly where this was not a thing even in 2016, even I don't think in 2018 when you first ran. I don't know. I can't remember any campaign in which a Republican tried to weaponize charges of pedophilia and grooming in that campaign. It's really brand new. Do you have a sense of where it comes from? And I think I know where its power comes from, but why Republicans have seized on it to the degree you talked before about it's kind of the new thing. What is animating that in your view? So it, it comes out of QAnon. And I talked about this after the 2020 election, that if we kept validating the big lie that somehow Trump was anointed president by God, then let's actually peel that back. And what that means is, you know, under QAnon, that the government is actually run by a Satanist cabal of pedophiles. And this is why a shooter went to a DC pizza place thinking that there was more children trapped in a basement that didn't exist. We started seeing it pulled out in the summer of 2020, when particularly moms were being targeted with Instagram ads, Facebook ads about hashtag save the children. And I saw this happen in my community. You know, women who go to yoga like are suddenly believing that children are being kidnapped, sex trafficked at much higher rates than is actually happening. And this isn't to minimize human trafficking is a very real issue, but it was taking women down this rabbit hole. And we saw this rise of white suburban moms who were susceptible to this QAnon conspiracy theory message and were suddenly going to rallies that included anti-vaxxers, that included, you know, right. all of these sorts of perfect storm conspiracy theories for vulnerable people. And now it's being pulled even out further into the open because if you fundamentally believe your child is under attack or is going to walk out the door or go to school and be molested – that's going to turn you into a person who's willing to do just about anything to stop it. And it is, it, it's terrifying to watch it so blatantly out in the open right now. 
We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more of Mallory McMorrow here on Hell and High Water. We're back with Mallory McMorrow here on Hell and High Water. And, you know, I mentioned I alluded to a little bit earlier the controversy last week around Elise Stefanik and how she had kind of tossed casually an accusation of Democrats all being pedos, pedos, whatever you call it, depending on if you're British or American, into a tweet, which caused a huge amount of controversy last week. And she got hammered and pummeled by various people. But I do want to play the thing that I alluded to, which is not something that she said, but an interaction that took place over the phone when a constituent called Stefanik's office and confronted the office over the statement about how all Democrats were pedos. And the recording of this ended up in the hands of Parker Malloy, who's a big figure on Twitter, and Parker ended up putting the, the audio out. It's hilarious for one thing, but it's also really interesting because I think it illuminates something about the ways in which your strategy and the strategy you advocate for how to fight back actually works in practice. You sort of start the conversation pretty bad when you say the White House, House Dems, and usual pedo grifters. Who are the usual pedo yep, so, grifters? So, so I, I don't mean to cut you off. I, I, I wanted, because we've gotten a few phone calls about this. Uh, first off is this is her personal Twitter. Just have to note that. Um, and number two, uh, pedo is not short for pedophile. It is pedo as in children. Um, pedo is a, it's a it, it, if you look it up on yeah, Google. Yeah, it, I know it, what the word means. It, so the thing that interests me about that, I mean, look, some staffer gets a bunch of pop. We got a few phone calls on this. I bet you got a few phone calls on this. <laughs> if by a few, you mean yeah. several thousand. But I do feel like in the Tucker thing that we heard before and in this reaction, it's almost like a validation of your theory, right? When you fight back and call bullshit on bullshit, it, they're they so... Yes, they're not used to it, right? They're not used to being called on their bullshit. And you can see them on the back foot a little bit, like... Okay, wait, 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 wait. We thought we could get away with this. And the thing you said at one point that really struck me was that when Senator Tice sent the letter to you, that what struck you about her email was that you, quote, felt like that Tice felt like she could say whatever she wanted with no basis in reality, and it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the thing that you're doing. By calling bullshit, it's like you're saying, no, no, you don't get to say this with impunity. This is not just free space where you can go and do whatever you want. That both devalues it and also makes it more insidious when we don't pay attention to it. By fighting it, it's like, no, this actually really matters. This is contested space. And what you find out is that people who've been having that space uncontested for a long time are like, wait, whoa, there's somebody here fighting me for this for this space? Well, oh, totally. well oh, sorry, I, I didn't really mean what I said, blah, blah, blah. I feel like that's sort of when you hear that defensiveness that is validating the, the Mallory McMorrow theory of rhetorical conflict. Oh, 100%. If it is just a blatant lie, call it a lie. You know, they've gone too far. If it's kind of attacking me on a position or a bill I put up, that's fine. You know, you can debate that. But if it's just accusing me of pedophilia and grooming, and you don't think that I'm going to hit back on that, then then you're wrong. And we have to do that. That is the line. And if we just cede that space, again, I think it goes back to like, well, if we just don't talk about it, it's going to go away. But the reality is if we don't hit back on it, they keep pushing further and further and further. And we've seen that in Michigan with the Republican Party, the candidates who are coming out of these primaries. It just feels like a competition for who can say the worst, most disgusting, vile thing. There was a, a special election on the west side of the state with the nominee who came out of the Republican primary, a guy named Robert Regan. 
touted all of this anti-Semitism. He believed that the invasion of Ukraine was led by Anthony Fauci about a bioweapon. But he also (laughs) said that Mm. if his daughters were ever raped, he would tell them to lie back and enjoy it. And you just got to call them on their bullshit. And Carol Glanville, who was the Democrat who was running in that race, that this was a Trump plus 16 district. Yeah. She did. She was aggressive in calling out, this is a disgusting, hateful man. And she worked doors and she got out and she met people and she won in a place where Democrats should not win, which was amazing and, and proof that we can get a little aggressive and we can win. You lead me to the Michigan question now for our final little set of discussions here. You're not a Michigander by birth. What led you there? Why are you in Michigan? Michigan is the most amazing place I've ever lived. I lived in five states. I've lived all over the country. But I came out to Michigan for a road rally every year that friends of mine started that was a thousand miles around the state with creative professionals from all over the country. And I just fell in love with it. You get Detroit. You get the Great Lakes. You get beautiful outdoors. And it's a place where I've never seen so many bumper stickers related to the state you're actually in. Like Michiganders love Michigan and want to work with each other. And there's this very Midwestern sense of we're all in this together and we love this place. So I chose to move to Michigan and I fight like hell for it because it is a place where I feel like I've been able to be the best version of myself and to watch hateful people try to destroy it. It's just, it's not going to happen on my watch. So we talked before about the Holy Trinity, the triumvirate, let's call them that Holy Trinity. Someone will take me seriously. I said, I don't think they're actually holy. I don't think there's (laughs) no, no, I'm not making a real religious illusion here, but the governor, the attorney general and the secretary of state, three powerful women, Democrats in, in powerful offices. And now they're all on the ballot in 2022. And in the middle of that, there's two things happening. One is the Republican Party has gone pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. And then you drop in the middle of that the possibility that Roe v. Wade's going to be overturned or the likelihood now that Roe v. Wade's going to be overturned. That's a powerful, combustive element. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means when I say the party's gone crazy. In particular, the party's now sanctioned, officially endorsed candidates for Secretary of State and Attorney General are batshit crazy. Batshit crazy. crazy. Okay. But let's just talk about Roe for a second. Here's Gretchen Whitmer. She basically says, you know what? We got a problem here in Michigan. We've got this old law in the books that was invalidated by Roe. And the minute Roe gets overturned, in theory, that old law becomes law again in Michigan. You can't have an abortion here. One of those many states in America where either because of a trigger law or because of some pre-existing Roe law that's still on the books but dormant, immediately flipped to a place where you can't get an abortion. So this is what Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been saying about this topic. If Roe's overturned, Michigan will revert to having one of the most extreme laws in the country. We would go overnight from a pro-choice state to a state that makes it a felony to perform an abortion, would criminalize um, the act of giving an abortion to a woman who is a victim of incest or rape even. It would be one of the most extreme laws on the books. This is something that is going to have a dramatic impact on millions of women in my state, and that's why I'm fighting. So Governor Whitmer says she's going to try to get the state Supreme Court to to say that the law is at odds with the state constitution. She's making moves on this front. Dana Nessel, the attorney general, says that the road gets overturned and we go back to the status quo ante. I'm not going to enforce that law. We're just not going to do it, right? What do you think of how those two women, leaders in your party, are handling this? Again, seen through the prism of how you think this stuff should be talked about. And and it's, again, another cultural issue, obviously also a health health issue, but a cultural issue. Do you think right now, watching the way Whitmer and Nestle are dealing with this, that they're taking this on properly? Or are there things you'd like to see them do more of or less of? 
I mean, I think they're handling it beautifully. And to add on to that, we also have a ballot initiative that Planned Parenthood and ACLU are circulating now to amend the state constitution to guarantee access in our state constitution. And I've introduced legislation in the Senate to create the Reproductive Health Act, which would guarantee access and reproductive rights via statute. So my message to constituents is we as a team are going at this on all fronts because I think where people get really frustrated with Democrats is when we don't even try, when we know that it's very unlikely to succeed, so we just don't do it, or we try something once and then we back off. People are pissed about this. And the, the reality that when Roe falls, you know, if you are a mother, for example, and your daughter gets pregnant and you secure medication abortion for her, you will be sent to jail. Like it is a felony. You will be gone for at least four years. It's horrifying. People are pissed. So I think that we all collectively as a team are saying we are fighting every single angle on this, but we're going to need you with us because we don't get to pass my bill unless the Senate flips to Democratic control. We had one judge rule to stay the enforcement of the 1931 law, which is great, but it's a first step because that can go away at any time. So I'd love to see Democrats around the country do kind of the full court press that we're trying to do in Michigan to show people that we're fighting and we're not afraid to do that, even when it's unlikely to succeed. So I mentioned these two Republicans, the Republicans in question, Matthew DiPerno, who's a lawyer. He's not yet the nominee because the actual primary is not till August, but the state party has basically said that DiPerno is their guy. And Christina Caramo, who is the Secretary of State candidate, same category, a part-time community college professor. Both of them, election deniers, election to 2020 truthers. You know, they're crazy on a, on a number of levels. So DiPerno says he's against abortion in all cases, including rape and incest. They both are, are 20, as I say, 2020 truthers, and they're both going to be in very important positions going forward. I just want to stick on the abortion thing for one second more because I do want to play this piece of crazy ass sound. Jackie Eubanks, Donald Trump's oh. chosen candidate for a state Senate seat, someone who would have the same position as Mallory McMorrow if she gets elected. Jackie Eubanks talking about what she thinks about abortion. I said she because this is a she. This is not some dude. I mean, there's obviously dudes in the Republican Party who think this way, but this is a woman talking on a podcast or some kind of right-wing, right-to-life thing, something called church militant. She's not just talking about abortion and how she looks forward to the end of abortion rights and to the repeal of Roe v. Wade, but she's also talking about getting rid of birth control also. This clip just blows my mind, and I think it's going to blow your mind too. Mallory McMorrow, take a listen to someone who could be your colleague in the state Senate after November, Jackie Eubanks. Let's listen to that. You cannot have a successful society outside of the Christian moral order. And things like abortion and things like gay marriage are outside of the Christian moral order, and they lead to chaos and destruction and a culture of death. How do you answer the local press person who might be your age uh, and just sees you as some loony who that she wants to take away your birth control? Well, in the state of Michigan. Sure. So I guess we have to ask ourselves, would that ever come to a vote um, in the Michigan state legislature? And if it should, I, I would have to side with it should not be legal. And I think that people believe that birth control is it's better, like you said, because, oh, then you won't get pregnant and you won't need to have an abortion. But I think that it gives people the false sense of security that they can have consequence free sex. And that's not true. And it's not correct. Sex ought to be 
between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage. Mallory McMorrow, I give the floor to you to speak about and to Sister Eubanks there. Isn't that horrifying? Oh my, like this is, this is the argument that I'm making to my constituents who are Republicans and why I'm very intentional when I say Republicans are doing this. I'm not talking about my constituents. I'm talking about people like Jackie Eubanks who are running for state house and have the backing of Donald Trump. Uh, I'm talking about people like DePerno and Caramo who are have been nominated by this party for attorney general and secretary of state and traditional Republicans are falling in line behind them. This is horrifying. This is a woman who believes that women should be nothing but vessels for forced reproduction. That's horrific. And we've got to get really aggressive about saying that this is the reality if if we don't get out there and vote and get everybody registered to vote. And I just, I, what a horrible thing to listen to. It's one of those things that when you say, hey, you know, if the Supreme Court follows this reasoning, a lot of privacy decisions will be up for grabs, including the one Griswold v. Connecticut that keeps states from outlawing birth control. That if you follow the reasoning of Alito in this leaked opinion, that, you know, a lot of different other precedents could fall, including that one. And people then say to you, oh, you're being alarmist. No one wants to outlaw birth control. And then you hear this woman and go, well, not no one wants to outlaw birth control. There's a woman in Michigan. I point out again, a woman in -hmm. Michigan who'd be perfectly happy to outlaw birth control. And I'm guarantee you if there's one in Michigan named Jackie Eubanks, she's not the only one. They're everywhere. So the stakes here, right? We could do this all day. I mean, the two likely Republican candidates for the Secretary of State and Attorney General have both sworn allegiance to Donald Trump. They have said all kinds of crazy shit about race and gender. And the the, the, the leading candidate for governor on the Republican side is the same way. He's also an election truther, the former Detroit police commissioner. They would say they wouldn't have necessarily certified the election. They say the election was stolen. They say that 2020 was a fraud. They're with Trump 100% on the big lie. And I want you just to talk a little bit about what's happened to the Republican Party in Michigan, that it's gone this crazy. And what is at stake when these are the people that are going to be running against those three women that we talked about before? And I'll tell you right now, I mean, you look at Gretchen Whitmer's poll numbers against Craig, the leading Republican candidate who's likely to be the nominee there. It's like it's a toss up race. No one thinks Gretchen Whitmer is going to win by eight points again in 2022. So tell me about what's at stake and, and how intense you think this battle is going to be. I think that it is it is going to be intense. And I think it's way too easy for people to look at people like Jackie Banks, people who are coming out of the the GOP nominating convention and kind of take a step back and and laugh and say, oh, well, that's you know, that's never going to happen. We thought Donald Trump was never going to get elected in Michigan, and he did. So that is the urgency that we all have to go into this next cycle. And the reality is, you know, if Roe falls, contraception can potentially be illegal. We are going to have women sent to jail. The Republican Party has been replacing members of boards of canvassers in every county throughout Michigan with people who will willingly overturn the election results if they don't like them. So thinking about how consequential Michigan is for the rest of the country, it is not hyperbole to say this may be our very last free and fair election if we don't send back Gretchen Whitmer, Dana Nessel, Jocelyn Benson, and show that this strategy for the GOP is not going to win. You know, that's why I'm taking up hate won't win as a rallying cry, because if we don't stop it, it is going to win. Christina Caramo is genuinely nuts. I don't mean that euphemistically. I mean, people use that phrase, crazy as a shithouse rat. I mean, she's crazy. This woman's nuts. And you could play a long string of the crazy things that she said. And well, you know, 
not only could you, but I think we will. So let's take a listen to this, the mental gumballs like tumbling out of Christina Caramo's mouth here in this supercut CNN put together related to just how extreme the potential next Secretary of State in the state of Michigan is. It is not right that hundreds of thousands of votes are allowed to be considered as lawful votes and we know they're illegal. Donald Trump won Michigan. Their party has totally been taken over by a satanic agenda. There is no such thing as a person with two mommies and two daddies. That is just factually incorrect. We normalize people fornicating and we normalize people living together with their boyfriends and girlfriends and all this stuff. We opened a door for us to get to the point where we have people want to normalize pedophilia. Evolution is one of the biggest frauds that are perpetrated on us. Guess what? I'm crazy. I'm an anti-vaxxer. You know, but she's an exemplar of a thing, right? Which is not just they all swear allegiance to Donald Trump, but that Trumpism now, and you see this in all these primaries around the country, Trumpism's out of the bottle now. So I guess that's the question I want to end with you is like, is now the leading Democratic strategist in the country and exemplar for all things in the Democratic Party. Do you think that Democrats are too obsessed with Trump and not obsessed enough with Trumpism and that those two things are now distinct? That Donald Trump could get hit by a bus tomorrow and it's not all going to disappear, these things that you're trying to fight. Yes, 100 percent. You know, I, I think that all of these elements existed below the surface and he just brought them out. But whether or not he's on the ballot, whether or not he's an element, it is happening. And frankly, it's growing beyond him. I think the candidates that are coming forward now are much more extreme and dangerous than he was. So uh, I know it's, it's, it's easy for us to point the blame and, and talk about Trump versus the extremism that is actually on the surface right now that is far, far more dangerous than he is. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, just remember me when you get to the White House, okay? Um, just like eight years, 16 years, whenever it is down the line when you're sitting in that big round room. Oh, man. Remember how much Hell and High Water helped you get there. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Mallory McMorrow for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Pierre Benhamé engineered the podcast. Megan Burney is our producer. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. And the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. 